Ever feel like you're all alone? Nobody in the world understands? Nobody in the world is going through what you're going through right now. If you're a patient with a rare disease, you may actually be right. You may actually know no other person in the world with your condition. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'll be joined on today's show by Dr. Michelle Bailey, a board-certified pediatrician and senior medical director, and will be joined again by Carrie McDonough, VP of Medical and Scientific Affairs here at Cineos Health. You may remember Carrie from our episode on advocacy archetypes. Carrie and Michelle will be talking with me about the intersection of rare diseases and mental health. This is all in front of Rare Disease Day, which is February 28th. Mental health and rare diseases next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Michelle Bailey, welcome to the podcast. Carrie McDonough, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So what brings you here today? I know what it is. I know it's about Rare Disease Day. Can you tell me about what Rare Disease Day is and why it's important? Rare Disease Day is a day designated to unify the rare disease community around education, awareness, activation, and we celebrate it full force at Cineos Health. It's a very important day for us, and this year we'll be focusing specifically on the topic we're here to talk about today, which is the intersection of mental health and rare disease. When is Rare Disease Day? Rare Disease Day is February 28th. We recognize it's important so much, we're actually spreading it out across two days. That also allows us to catch more folks that may be dialing up from different time zones or that can't dedicate a full day to it. So we'll be celebrating on the 28th and the 1st of March, and it'll be from, and this is in Eastern Standard Time, it'll be from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. This is something that we're doing specifically? Yes. This year, and as we have for the past three years, we are partnering with the Rare Disease Innovations Institute to bring together our stakeholders to recognize and dig into some of the topics that are really important, either longstanding or emerging in the rare disease community. And this year, we'll be focusing on the intersection of mental health and rare disease. So we'll put a link to the show notes to that so that you're able to get to this celebration on the 28th of February and the 1st of March. Yes, February 28th is a Monday and the 1st of March is Tuesday. All right. So mental health and rare disease. When I think about rare diseases and mental health and that intersection, I think of the fact that some rare diseases cause mental health issues. Is that the primary focus of why mental health and rare disease are brought together? That's a really good question. And no, actually, that is definitely a scenario and does happen. A mental health symptom can be connected to whatever's causing the rare disease to begin with, or say in a condition like Huntington's, some of the ways that a disease presents could present in a way that's similar to maybe a mental health condition or even similar to someone that may be using drugs or alcohol, which leads to a whole bunch of stigma. When we're looking at mental health and rare disease, we're very much interested in the fact that there are over 7,000 rare diseases out there. And certainly there's no one or no program or support network that can provide specific support for all of those conditions. But we like to think about the commonalities among some of the rare disease conditions because there are things that a rare disease might cause to happen in your life, either symptomatically or psychosocially, that then lead to some serious mental health considerations. 
you're talking about not the disease itself, but things that are happening because you have the disease and how others may treat you or interact with you. Am I basically understanding it? Yeah, yeah, you're getting it perfectly. I mean, there's a lot about the disease itself and also about the fact that if you have a rare disease, it's something that just by definition is something that folks out in the everyday world won't understand. It's not as clear as, say, if you have, and I don't want to minimize the impact of any condition, but I think at this point in time, most Americans, if we're talking about the American population, get generally what it's like to live with diabetes or generally what it's like to live with breast cancer. But with rare disease, there's so many question marks, even amongst physicians, that that itself can lead to some isolation and anxiety and panic as well. And I would just add to what Carrie just mentioned, there's also just the fact that you may have family members or coworkers that have never heard of the condition itself, especially when you're talking about some of the ultra rare diseases where there may only be a handful or a hundred individuals who have been diagnosed. And so there is this feeling of isolation that can occur and not having the level of support that you might have with another diagnosis that's more commonly known. And in addition to that, I would just say that many people who have rare diseases may not have been diagnosed. And so they have symptoms that bring them to medical attention. And because they are rare conditions, sometimes healthcare professionals haven't heard of these conditions. And so there may be a delay in the time between symptom onset and diagnosis, which can be really frustrating for people. I think I hear that even with non-rare diseases. So I'm trying to understand what makes rare diseases special in this regard. The irritation and frustration of having a poor diagnosis, no diagnosis, or being dismissed. I've heard that for things that are not common, but they're also not usual. So I don't know if they hit the orphan disease category, but they're unusual enough that you get dismissed. Even something as simple as chronic fatigue or something like that, which is relatively common, but is poorly understood and therefore dismissed. It's a really good point. And there is something a little bit arbitrary about the hard and fast line of what defines a rare disease, but it is, at least for the U.S., a condition where less than 200,000 people will have it at any given time. For most rare diseases, it ends up magnifying that impact because it may take even longer to find a diagnosis. I get what you're saying, though, about chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, which I happen to have. It's one of those really fuzzy diagnoses, which can be also quite frustrating. Neither Michelle nor I are saying that the mental health impacts are definitely, quote unquote, worse for anybody. Because if you think about 7,000 rare diseases, not all of them have anywhere near the same impact on somebody's life. I didn't mean to make it a contest. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that is very hopeful about rare diseases is that some of them have now well-characterized genetic bases. Does that help? Does that hurt in terms of the mental health of patients with rare disease? You know you have it in some cases, and it's pretty clear what exactly is going on if you have a deletion in some chromosome. So. I think it depends on the person. From what I've read and heard by just talking to different folks, so often people say that getting the diagnosis is a huge relief, especially if you've been on this diagnostic odyssey that's taken you years and just lots of 
physical energy and usually a lot of money to get to that diagnosis. There is a sense of relief, but depending on what that diagnosis is, that relief can quickly get superseded by fear or uncertainty, depending on what the diagnosis is and how well characterized it is. Yeah. And you mentioned Huntington's. I know from following some cases along that those that before they're diagnosed and they know that they still have a 50% chance of having it because they had a parent that had it and it's autosomal dominant. So if they get the gene, they have it. I don't want to call it a death sentence, but you certainly reduce lifespan and reduce mental capacity as your mind changes from the condition. That strikes me as having its own mental health issues, both the stress of not knowing, do you take the test? And then once you get it, the idea that, I mean, we all know that we're all going to die, but that's someday and not necessarily how. It seems like a hard one. Yeah, it absolutely is. There's a advocate named Seth Ratberg who started an organization called Our Odyssey, which was designed to help young adults who are impacted by illnesses, largely rare diseases. And he speaks about that a lot because he was a caregiver for his mom when she got Huntington's and knows firsthand what that means. And the family, him and his siblings had to wrestle with the question of what you do and that leads to all sorts of implications and how you plan your life, what you take on. It can be incredibly terrifying. He speaks a lot about how as a young guy in his late 20s, all of his friends are thinking about certain life milestones that he's just not sure what is to come. And that makes decisions about what you're doing with your career, what you're doing if you want to start a family or if you already have a family, that kind of thing. The other point that I think is really important is that Even though there are genetic markers now which can help identify diseases which we previously had not yet identified, cell and gene therapies are really changing the game in that some may offer the hope of a cure, and yet they may or may not be available widely, either because of financial limitations on the part of a family or because they're not yet have marketing approval. They may still be in clinical trial stages. But even when you do have hope of a therapy, there's the uncertainty of what that therapy will do for you or for your child. For example, with spinal muscular atrophy, there are now marketed products that can help with the disease. And if you're a parent and having to make that decision, you may move forward with having your child treated and then have uncertainty on the other side of that as to what this means, because there's still not yet long-term data that's available. Yeah, to build on that, there's similar things going on in the sickle cell community. There's actually a really powerful piece in the New York Times that follows two separate families and one that is able to get access to an emerging therapy and one that is not. Just seeing that sort of disparity in itself You can imagine all of the different mental health implications that come with that and the frustration around not being able to try something that for very obvious reasons want to try or want your kids to try. So we've talked about some of the things that make mental health a challenge for patients and caregivers with rare disease. It's always isolating to think that you're the only one that knows their circumstance. And it's really true for some of them. They really may be the only one or very much a small handful. So it's not just paranoia or depression that says that, that's saying that, but it's a bit of reality. What do we do? 
what is it that we as professionals in the field and in society, what do we do to help support the mental health of those that have rare diseases or their caregivers? One of the things that I think is helpful is continuing to remove the stigma that surrounds talking about mental health, particularly mental health disorders. And it can really be a significant barrier in people going to get help. So that's the first thing is to start having conversations about this. And then also talking about practices that can help with cultivating, preserving, and restoring mental health, because that often leads to greater sense of well-being. Even if a cure is not available, there's still healing that can occur just in knowing that you have some control or some agency over how you're feeling. And I'll add on that. If we can't expect your everyday physician to be able to understand or recognize or differentiate between 7,000 rare diseases, we can't expect the general population to. But what we can do is try to generate some awareness and recognition of different conditions, what kind of impact they might have on you. And so that we can all just be a little bit more aware of what somebody might be going through. For example, if somebody has a rare disease that the symptoms are highly visible and they may have some trouble communicating or they may be using a wheelchair, trying to help the general population and people that folks work with or family members understand that doesn't mean their condition is contagious or it doesn't mean that what they've got going on limits their ability to do X, Y, or Z and trying to approach that stigma angle, but from a little bit more of a nuanced approach. That point that you just made about people worried about catching a rare disease, I can think of a friend that I had growing up who had what is termed idiopathic alopecia, which just means you're going bald and we don't know why. And she said later that was a concern that people often would avoid her, she felt, or was told later because they thought that they were going to catch baldness from her. I'm struggling a little bit trying to think what the solution is for something like this. It's certainly helpful that we get taught more genetics in school these days. So there are ways that we can understand this. What are you suggesting be done so that people remove that particular stigma? Engaging with the rare disease community and advocacy organizations is certainly one way to make a difference. Listening to people talk about what it's like to live with a rare disease and to actually give some additional information to raise awareness about the particular disease that they've been diagnosed with can help go a long way. When I was practicing in pediatrics, we partnered with schools when we had a child that was under our medical care diagnosed with a particular condition. And we would help the parents to be able to send information to the school and have that child or the parents come in and talk about what it's like to live with that condition. And sometimes there may be dietary restrictions or activity restrictions. And it's an opportunity to talk about that and educate the other children in the class, as well as their families. I think the more that we can do things like that, that are both community-based, and as Carrie mentioned previously, also educating our healthcare professionals who are working with rare disease populations, I think that can really go a long way. We run a lot of clinical trials, and the industry has a lot of drugs in the pipeline and in development and in clinical trials. And some in the market, for rare diseases. As we've talked through rare diseases and mental health, what is it that somebody running clinical trials or going to run clinical trials 
should be thinking about because of the mental health of the patients and caregivers? What's different about rare diseases and mental health that we have to be aware of as we do our jobs? One thing that comes to mind is at the stage of protocol development for the clinical trial is to have input from key stakeholders who can really take a look at the design of a trial and what it would take to execute that on the part of the patients who would be enrolling. So what can we do to help minimize burden? We're thinking about that often with any clinical trial that's enrolling patients. But in particular, for rare disease populations, understanding some of the limitations that they may have, the time commitments in terms of being able to travel to a site location and then staying on site for a long period of time, how that might impact recruitment and retention for the clinical trial. So I think those are a few places that we can start. And some of those key stakeholders may actually be patient advocacy organizations, in addition to patient voices themselves. Patient advocacy organizations are in some ways a treasure trove both to the patients and families that migrate to them or start them. There is the reality that of the 7,000 or so rare diseases that have been identified, only about half of them have designated patient advocacy groups aligned. So part of that, I think, from an industry perspective is to recognize who is represented and who might not be and try to help without being overpowering, try to help some groups start to grow or start to connect or build some capacity. And then even before you get to the protocol phase, it's thinking about how you're talking about what you're trying to do in terms of intervening with a rare disease or ideally for many, many, many populations, finding a cure. But thinking about the language that the patient community might be using and what they might be sensitive to. I mean, one thing that we see a lot is just to go back to that word cure. Some people within certain diagnoses don't necessarily want a cure. They might want to help navigating their symptoms or navigating whatever might be going on with them. I'm thinking of achondroplasia specifically, which in shorthand is dwarfism. And some in the community are super vocal that they don't necessarily want a cure, but they wouldn't mind help with limb lengthening. So it's thinking about what actually is important. What do the patient communities want to have scientific intervention for? And then also, what do they want to be measuring? You know, the whole movement toward patient reported outcomes, that's exceptionally important in rare disease. Repeat one more time as we close. Rare Disease Day is when and where can they find it? Rare Disease Day is Monday, February 28th, and it's an international celebration and recognition and a moment for the entire rare disease community to come together. For Cineos Health, Rare Disease Day is February 28th, and we're also extending it to March 1st. And we're going to be having a series of events online where we're going to be digging into this very topic about the intersection of mental health and rare disease. And one thing I want to note is that we're going to be joined by a researcher named Kathleen Bogart, who lives with a rare disease herself, and she has done some phenomenal work really drilling down into the patient experience across a number of different conditions, but even more important than the conditions necessarily, it's the patient experience across different shared aspects of a condition. Things like visible or invisible illness or illnesses that you know your entire life, you're diagnosed at birth or shortly thereafter. 
and how that impacts your mental health compared to when you're going about your life and you're a-okay and feeling at the height of your game and then suddenly you're sideswiped with a diagnosis which can happen we see that a lot in conditions like we mentioned huntington's and also things like als or even ms represent that way where to find information and find the link to join us, I would go to our website at cineoshealth.com. We'll have it posted there and we'll post also a specific link within the show notes. Hey, Michelle Bailey, Carrie McDonough, thank you so much for joining us on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Looking forward to seeing you and everyone else at Rare Disease Day. I'll be there. Awesome. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.